Hey kids, you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Cachette of Agua with Michelle Carlo. It's Tuesday, June 27, 2017, and we have a very special episode for you today. No, not like those preachy after-school specials we watched in the 90s. 80s? Um, never mind. But this is going to be a special splendiferous show, and we think this song is pretty special too. from the Pretenders album of the same name from 1980. And when I said this was going to be a special splendiferous episode, I really meant it because today we're going to rebroadcast three fantastic guest artist interviews from season one. Partially because it's Pride Month. Okay, maybe there's only three days left, but it still counts. But also because each of these artists have fantastic things coming up this summer that I wanted to get the word out about. So let's get right to it by opening this guest artist with a song he handpicked for his intro. And we're back on Radio Free Brooklyn with Fish Out of Agua. 
That was City in the Sky from the Staples Singers album of the same name from 1974. And now, without further ado, from Fish Out of Agua Season 1, Episode 23, the Double Redhead episode featuring Kevin Allison. Let's get to this interview with the wonderful and the amazing and fellow redhead and cat lover, Kevin Allison. Hello. It's great to be here. Good. I'm so happy. So talk about how we met again. Do you think it was Brad Lawrence and Cindy Freeman's show? I think it was a show that Brad and Cindy had put together. I think it might have been at uh, Underground, uh, St. Mark's Underground. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. When I... Under St. Mark's. Under St. Mark's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. When I first started in storytelling, I was really, really touched by how, like a lot of people who were doing The Moth and their own little storytelling shows were so welcoming, so receptive, and so like helpful. People like Adam Wade and Brad and Cindy and Peter Aguaro were yes. very, very like, you know, supportive. Because so, storytellers are better than stand-up, sorry. <laughs> there's something about the... I don't mean better, but like, we're nicer, we're nicer. I think Friendlier, it, it comes more supportive. of what storytelling is. Yeah. You know, the, the way that you're kind of like sharing and opening up about what you really think and feel about that just makes people a little bit more open and a little bit more supportive, I think. Yeah. I think so. So when you saw me perform with Brad and Cindy, who I have to say were the other two people at that time they were doing both burlesque and storytelling <laughs> <coughs> right. smart and hot mm-hmm. anyway so you were you you were telling stories then you did not have the podcast yet no. wait till i tell you which we find out which podcast is it you're gonna be like oh my gosh you got him i was uh in my old sketch comedy group the state yes we had a philosophy that in order to learn how to do something start doing it and putting it out immediately yeah, in yeah. other words don't don't you know don't go to school for something do DIY, like punk. Exactly. Like the Ramones. So the risk, my podcast, you in those very first episodes, that's the beginning of me trying storytelling. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I was going around to those other storytelling shows at around the same time that I was just starting to do storytelling of my own on with my own show. Can you put a year on that? Yeah, 2009. 2009, the summer of 2009 oh, wow. was when it occurred to me I should put this show together and so that's when I started working on my own stories, trying that out at other people's shows and inviting them to come do risk. In August of 2009 was when we had the first Risk live show, and then in October was when we put out the first podcast episode. So, and I remember the first shows were at the Pit, the People's Improv Theater, correct? No, the no? very first shows of Risk were at Arlene's Grocery. Oh, you kidding me? Yeah, oh my god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was this. Uh, I, you know, had recently lived on Ludlow Street, and I knew about it. It was this little punk rock indie, yeah, indie yeah, band yeah. bar. Yeah, yeah. They weren't used to even doing spoken word sorts of shows there, so. We did it there, and it was really fun. You know, when I first started Risk, I really relied on a lot of old people that I had known from back when I was on TV so that I knew I could get people to come to see the show. People like Margaret Cho or Mark Marin or 
Um, who has a podcast himself. Yeah. And Mark yeah, yeah, Maron yeah. Was, a, was a frequent person at the open mics at Surf Reality yeah, and the Luna yeah, Lounge yeah, scene. Yes, exactly. I, I knew who he was. I mean, he probably remembered me with someone like with stuff on a head and he, you know, yes. in the my Karma Fungal days and he so probably you, said, who the hell you, is this you now? You and I might have even seen each other at Luna Lounge or Surf Reality way back in the day. Way back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so, yeah, I... I came to storytelling in a very roundabout way because, you know, after the state broke up in 1996, I spent literally 12 years not knowing how to express myself on stage. Are you kidding? I, I, I would wow. get, I'd get up on stage and I'd play these characters, these sketch comedy characters, these very cartoonish characters, but I was really hiding behind this mask, you know? And, and I really, I didn't realize that I was too afraid to be myself on oh stage. Oh my god! I never tried stand up because I was too afraid that I couldn't express my own opinions or observations, and I, I, I don't know. I just had too much social anxiety about that. So it took twelve years of failure, and you know, eviction notices, and the electricity being turned off, and the, like, like just. Struggling with alcoholism, you know, like a lot of like hard years in between 1996 and 2009. Oh my God. And it was Michael Lee and Black who said to me, stop getting up on stage and playing these crazy characters. Get up on stage and talk about your own life because it's more interesting than any fiction. And I was like, this is ah. true. And you can't go off on your lines if it's your story. Exactly. I didn't realize that yeah. at first. Because that's one of my first stories is about the time at Luna Lounge when I was playing a crazy kooky character on stage and forgot my lines and totally freaked out. Right, because you blank. And, and you're like, what the fuck do I do? I tried to run out of the theater. Oh, did you really? I tried to, oh but I couldn't God. make it out because the place oh was too crowded and they forced me back up on stage. Oh, my God. So, yeah, it was true storytelling when I tried that for the first... Michael Ian Black said, listen, tell your own true stories on stage. I was like, but I'm too gay and I'm too Midwestern and I'm too raunchy and kinky and I'm too... He's like, it doesn't matter. I, I said, it feels too risky because I'm too complicated. Risky. Like, that's the definitive word in that sentence. He said, that's the winning formula. If it's risky, people will listen. People yes. will open up if you're opening up. So I was like, all right, the very next week I came back to New York. I was 39, so I was like, all right, what have I got to lose? I'm about to turn 40. I'll try something new. I'll tell a true story on stage. So Margot Lightman had a show at that time. Margot, hi, Margot. <laughs> was it Strip Stories? Yes. The one that she did with Julia Rossi? Exactly. I love them. Exactly. Doing, doing that show was definitely one of my the highlights that I ever did because they were just so welcoming and awesome. And that was a show that really dared people to share mm -hmm. this daring stuff because it was all about your sex life. Yes. So I said, okay, I'll try this and I'll tell a story about the first time I prostituted myself when I was 22 years old. Wow. Before the state was picked up for TV. So you were a male hustler? For a weekend. Oh my God, that's even better. <laughs> I tried it three times. Oh my God. <laughs> right, because you had to, because like, like, yeah, I, I get it. It's like, well, you know, you always try something more than once to make <laughs> yeah, sure you don't like right. it. Right. And I, but uh, I, I promised Margot I would tell this story on her show. And then the day of, I called her, I was like, I can't do this. <gasps> I can't do it. I've got to back out. It's too risky. And she said, oh my God, that's such good news. I was <laughs> like, what? She said, on the day of the show, someone usually calls me and says, I can't do this, it's too risky. 
And if I can convince that person to really just go ahead and do it, that's the story that'll hit it out of the park. Yes, she's right. Smart lady, Margo. So I told that story that night. And it was like night and day. I did feel like, oh my God, now I sound too gay. Oh my God, now I sound too Midwestern. You know, like all these self-critical things. But I kept pushing past them. And the more I did, the more the audience was opening up to me. The more I could feel this real connection that I hadn't felt when I was playing crazy, kooky characters. That's so stage. crazy. I had a very similar thing happen to me. I, used, I was hiding behind Karma Mafungo for years. And I was taking a solo performance class with Kirsten Ames, who used right, to do the, right. the HBO, the Aspen Comedy Festival right. thing. And everybody was trying to get into that in the early 2000s, like 2001, mm-hmm. 2, 3. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to work on a, on a solo show, and she's just like, all you do on stage is play a character. You're not yourself. She said, you need to do storytelling. You need to go to the moth. And she dared me to go to the moth. Oh. And she said, well, you should go watch it a few times first to see what it's like. And I was like, fuck that. I went. I put my Good name in the hat. Good I got. I, got, I didn't mean fuck that to her. I mean, I was like, fuck that. I'm just going to yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah, sure. I put my name in the hat. I got picked last. I told the story, and I won. And there from that point go. on, I, I, I started learning how to be myself. That is right. High five. Yeah, that's that is what so it's cool. all about. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was that night walking away. I from... wish I could say I was 39, but I was a little older than that. No, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> but close, but yeah, close. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's... Yeah. it's yeah. I am always a big, big fan of those stories of people who, you know, aren't in their 20s or whatever and right. discover a new thing they can yeah, do. You yeah. know, I, those are incredibly important stories about people who are in their 40s or 50s or whatever and, yeah. and are like, wait a minute, I can try this new thing. And it's, and it's great. Yeah. So how did that segue into Risk? Well, it was literally... That night, I told that prostitution story at Strip Stories, and I was so thrilled with how it went over. I felt such a different connection to the audience. You know what was interesting? Afterwards, people weren't just saying, oh, that was funny, but afterwards, people were grabbing me and saying, well, I've never prostituted myself, but something you said about your feelings or that thought that went through your head, oh my God, it triggered this this memory of this fight I got in with my mom when I was in the eighth grade. Like, when you tell a true story, all of a sudden, it resonates with people in ways you might not even be able to predict. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're talking about emotional truth. You're talking about, like, thoughts and feelings that are, are really psychologically, like, hardwired. And, and, and it'll just bring things out in people. So I was just thrilled with how well it went over. And I walked, I remember I was walking down 8th Avenue away from UCB that night thinking, that's it, risk. I, I was thinking... I mentioned riskiness to Michael, and I mentioned riskiness to Margot, and got such positive. And here this went over. I was like, I've got to create a show where people kind of come out mm. about things that they might not feel comfortable coming out about right. at The Moth or any other show that might run on, say, National Public Radio. Right. I've got to create a show where there's a niche to be filled. I was aware that this storytelling thing was happening, because I had just done one of these shows, but I had never stepped foot in The Moth, and I had not really listened to that much of This American Life. I was just becoming aware that podcasts existed in 2000. Right. That was going to be my next question. It's like, how did you put the podcast together back in 2000? And I remember recording a couple of episodes for 
the risk podcast in like a closet and when you were living in Ridgewood <laughs> yes. and like with a cat on my lap. Yeah. <laughs> Not Donkey, the other one. Right. Not, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Mr. Boo. Oh, Mr. No. Boo. R.I.P. Um, one of the beautifulest cats ever. Yeah. But anyway, no, uh, it was walking away from UCB that night where I was like, okay, I know two things. I know that standing in front of a live audience and telling a story has a real energy to it. So that should be a component of this. But I also know that after 12 years of failing at just, you know, doing little shows in Manhattan, that you've got to reach a bigger audience. Yes. And at that time, I was aware of YouTube. I was aware of podcasts, you know, beginning to become aware of them. So I was like... I should definitely just make this a thing where I make a podcast where people tell true stories that they never thought they'd dare to share anywhere else. The kind of stories you might tell to your therapist or your best friend over a drink. And it's completely unfiltered. It's completely uncensored. Uh, and I'll call it risk. And I knew, like, right that first night, I was like, okay, some of the stories are going to be hilarious. Some of them are going to be traumatizing and terrifying, and some will be kind of beautiful and tear-jerking. We'll go all over the spectrum of anything that people, you know, feel like they can confess or whatever. Who was on your first episode? And you know, when was that? It was Mar October 1980. I mean, uh, October 2009. Yeah, the first episode. It ended with Mark Marin because he did that very first live show at. Arlene's Grocery and he was just he was about a month or so into his own podcast at that time so he gave me advice he was like oh I'll help you out with this I'll like you know hook you up with the you know people to give you advice on what equipment to amazing? buy and all that kind each of stuff each one teach one a, a, a very good storyteller that had a show on Radio Free Brooklyn named Jim Moore did the same thing for me he trained me on, on, on uh, Hindenburg and showed me how to do it that's another thing that I got out of storytelling was you know back when I was in the state we had this attitude of Oh my God, you know, we, we've got to just do our own thing and like we're, we're competing against everyone else. I feel like today the attitude, at least among storytellers and at least among me, uh, is, oh my God, no, no, no. Support other people, feature other people's stuff yeah. on your show, help that, you know, like, like there's plenty to go around. I, I, I think yes. that thinking of anything as a zero-sum game is is an old, antiquated, yes. you know, way of thinking It's about the patriarchy! Exactly. Smash the patriarchy! Exactly. <laughs> no, and it's like, definitely, each one teach one, and, um, you know, I my belief is that there's plenty of room at the top. Yeah. It's crowded at the bottom. Yeah. And people don't, don't believe that. Yeah. And that they're all struggling and trying to be cutthroat yeah. and like talking shit about each other and yeah. trying to hinder each other. Well, all you got to do is think of it as a ladder. You have one arm up and somebody's pulling you to the next rung and you have one arm down and you're pulling someone up to take your place when you go up. And always remember that if, if the opportunity isn't there, then try to start creating it of your own. You know, try to create something of your own. So how many cities is Risk in now? Oh my God. Well, Risk is once a month in New York, once a month in Los Angeles, okay. but each month I visit two or three different cities with the show. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so I'm going to Burlington, Vermont this uh, Saturday oh. to do the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's cool. We just, in January, we were in Houston, Dallas, Austin, and San Francisco, so that was a busy month. And um, now that it's been like going on eight years yeah. of, of this podcast, um, I know this because I started going out with my boyfriend in 2009, and that's one of the stories that I did, <laughs> I did with you about finding love when you're like in your late 40s. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! With 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 the magnolia blossoms. Mm -hmm. But um, so how many people do you think you've reached now? 
Oh, we get well over 2 million downloads a month. 2 million downloads. And I think we've had about 55 million downloads overall That's in the crazy. whole existence So this is like show. you had no clue that when you stepped on stage at Strip Stories with Margot <laughs> yeah. and so Margot, Julia, when you hear this <laughs> I don't know what to do with that information. I'm just saying, Margo, join me here. So, yeah. so what are your plans um, going forward with Risk as, as of now? We're coming out with a Risk book, or at least we're... we're and this is uh, 2017. That we're doing this, we're doing this um, interview uh, on Thursday, March 16th. Wow, okay. 20, 2017, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're coming out. We're hoping. We're, we're in the process of trying to sell a Risk book. We're talking about some Risk you know, film, TV kind of things. That's very vague. No, don't know if that will really happen. I'm thinking of creating another podcast. Really? Where I'm in conversation with people, a person shares a true story, and then we unpack, like, how they're dealing with the political situation. Ooh. Like, what, how they're trying to stay sane and healthy and... and Pro proactive and productive about making the world a better place. That sounds like an excellent, wonderful, amazing idea. Maybe yeah. consider pitching it to Radio Free Brooklyn for season five. I'll give sure. you information after we uh, cut. So, um, <laughs> any advice that you have for any people out there who want to, who want to do, who want to do, who want to do anything oh for those gosh. for those who want to. You know what? I would say just put one foot forward and give it a try. You know, never think, oh, my God, I can't do that. You know, give it a try. There's always workshops you can take or, or you know, opportunity. Like, for example, with storytelling, there are plenty of, like, you know, slams that you can mm -hmm. get up at. You can always Open just mics. make a recording and send it to someone. Yeah. And Yeah. Now, if somebody's listening here and they said, I want to do this and they want to pitch you, where can they find you? They can find me at risk-show.com and there's a submissions page there where there's even a video of me explaining hey here's what we look for here's how to prepare a pitch here's how to get well to I it. know I'm going to pitch for the coming season alright thanks so much for being on Kevin oh my god I have to say I I'd love to everybody but I think you must be the bestest one ever I'm giving you a big kiss <laughs> the... Kevin Allison is busy some of you yes may remember him from his days on the 90s MTV sketch show The State but since 2009, he's been the story behind and in front of the amazing and award-winning podcast and live show called Risk, where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share in public. The weekly Risk podcast gets over 2 million downloads each month, and their live shows, which are across the United States, are a must-see. You can catch the next live show in Brooklyn on Friday, June 30th at the Bell House, for more info, go to risk-show.com or risk-show.com. <laughs> Our next guest artist picked this song, a dance mix of one of the most famous songs from one of the most famous musical movies ever. You'll know the one I'm talking about, or you will once you hear...
Shadabagwa on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Doremi Dance Mix from DJ Chris Racine in 2001. And now, from Fish Out of Agua's Season 1 finale, Episode 26, Kelly Dunham. Thanks for having me on. We were trying to figure out how we knew each other before we began, and um, we have um, a friend, a mutual friend in common, well, friend for me and uh, ex-wife for you, right, because you're a widow now, Cheryl B., who was a poet and a very well-known poet and writer in the early aughts around the New York City scene, and um, we were, Cheryl and I were pretty good friends that would support each other's work, and I think that's how uh, we met, right, Kelly? Yeah, we originally met at, a, I think, a reading of yours that Cheryl was going to. Um, and she said, hey, I want you to meet my friend Michelle here. I, this is really amazing. And your book was coming out just about the same time. And I remember we had your book and we would uh, we actually read in bed together, read your book. And then really? We were like, yeah, look at this part, look at this part. And the part about the Bronx, or the Brooklyn Queens Day and the kids beating you up. And then we're, we're, we're good now. We're good now, right? Oh, like kill, the, kill Whitey Day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kill Whitey Day. Yeah, um, that was Kill Whitey Day and Kill Black and Puerto Rican. That was a book, the book that Kelly's talking about. <clears throat> Fish out of agua, <laughs> the namesake of this show. <laughs> Oh my God! That and that was in 2010. Yeah, that yeah, was just that, had just come out. Yeah. Oh my God! It's wow. it seems like so long ago. It seems like so. Yeah, it seems like she's like not gone at all, and that she's been gone for a decade. Yeah. yeah. So cancer sucks. That's all we're gonna say. Can- cancer, cancer sucks. And uh, Cheryl, I hope somebody um, gives you some waves that we're sending you a lot of love. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Kelly. So. Um, like your journey is like so freaking amazing. Like you've done more things in your life <laughs> in like or maybe like the past twenty years than people do in like seven lifetimes. So how how did you get to be where you are today? And I don't mean sitting on my couch <laughs> petting my cat. Petting your cat. Well, um, let's see, my first my first life in New York was as a nun. I was a missionary of charity, um, first a pre aspirant and then an aspirant. Um What does a, that mean? Well, that's like the very, very, very beginning stages of being a nun. Um, you're supposed to be a pre-aspirant for a month, um, but because I had insufficient docility, um, they made me be a pre-aspirant for... Insufficient docility. Uh, which we even knew that was a good thing, right? Uh, because I had pre um, insufficient docility, they made me be a pre-aspirant for a year and a half, which is like failing preschool 18 times. Ah, jeez. Yeah, I was not a good nun. So it's not like the flying nun. Not that um, I have, not that I even watched that show. Even I am a little bit too young, I'm too the, old, too young to have seen that. Yeah, for yeah, the flying yeah. Nun. Yeah. Um, I mean, in some ways it was similar. I was always in trouble. She was always in trouble. I didn't fly though. There okay. was no flying. No. Nah? Mm-mm. All right. No. no we wore too many clothes to fly. Like our clothes are very heavy and sticky. That's true. No, it's not and like smelly. Also, it's not like you guys were like taking mescaline or anything. <laughs> no, there was so little mescaline. So, um, so when that didn't work out. Are you are you a native of New York? I don't even know. Mm-mm. I'm originally from Wisconsin. Oh wow, Midwest. Yeah. God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, like Cheryl used to say, "Wow, that's like white square." That's yeah. Like seriously. White. Seriously. Yeah. It's like um, white on white. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I grew up in Hartford, Wisconsin, which is you know I uh, work in a school that has that during the '70s had 7,000 students, 
the same time I was living in a town in Hartford that, um, or a town in Wisconsin called Hartford that had 500 people in the entire in town. In the 70s? Right, exactly. So, oh my God. Uh, so the school was existing four, with 14 times more students than the people in my town. <laughs> Speechless. <laughs> so, um, what, what, when did you come here? How old were you when you came to New York? Um, I moved here originally to be a nun. That was like right. my first thing. So that was in the, mm, like 92, 90, okay. 91, 92, like that. Um, I was here for, uh, like three or four years for that. And then when they were like, no, this isn't really working out. Um, I lived in Philadelphia, uh, for about a decade and then moved back. Okay. And what were you doing when you moved back? What is that when you started getting into comedy? Were you, no, were I you writing? Been doing comedy. In fact, Cheryl and I had met years previous to that. I, she had no use for me. I was like trying to flirt with her and all that. She just had, she had, she couldn't be bothered years ago. But, <laughs> um, uh, I had been performing for a long time and, uh, and then I'd been living in Portland, Oregon, which is not my favorite place. It's like the anti-New York. Um, and then I was like, well, I needed to move back East. And I was like, well, New York, every performer should live in New York at least once in their life. And then I when think I moved so. here, I was like, oh no, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is where I'm supposed to be. So. It's funny. I think that some people are just wired to be New Yorkers. Like yeah. some people say that you have to be born and raised here to be a native New Yorker. And I say that's bullshit because if you're a New Yorker, you feel it in your, in your heart and you can't live anywhere else. You have to be here. Yeah. I always say that yeah. like, oh, well, what if I, you know, mobility wise, like I have any problems. What if I couldn't get her? I was like, well, then I'll just like, find one room in Manhattan and like take the bus everywhere. Like it just doesn't seem like yeah. anywhere else would work for me. And so. there's people that are born and raised here that don't like it here and uh, they all move upstate. So right, there right, you right. go. To New Jersey. Yeah. 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 Oh, Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, uh, what did your comedy like start from? Like what, 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 you know, like I would say fish out of Agua was like my way of trying to reconcile identity and race and all the bullshit that I went through when I was growing up in the, in the seventies. And like, how, why did your comedy come out of, well, and like making sense of things? Right. Well, I mean, I largely that largely making sense of things. I started, um, when I first started performing comedy, I was trying to do it kind of the traditional way where, you know, you um, go to comedy clubs and you do an open mic and then you do a bringer show and all that kind of thing. And, Ugh, um, I remember those. Uh, you know, this was in, like, I guess I started performing first time around like nine, 99, 2000, like that. And uh, my used to start, um, I used to start my com every, you know, you start uh, shows with, um, I need you to uh, ignore all the visual cues and believe that I am... Um, an adult female and not a 12-year-old boy, right? And uh, this guy in the audience uh, yelled, you're not a 12-year-old boy, you're a big fat dyke. And oh. before I could even, like, screen it, before it came out, before I even they're, they're just bypassed my brain entirely, I just said, oh, and this was right when the when the pedophilia uh, stuff had just broke with the Catholic Church, and I said, you're just sad I'm not a 12-year-old boy, you and the um, priests both. Oh, psych! <laughs> Which was hitting him back way too hard, right? Yeah. And he I don't chased care. He me. deserved it. He, he deserved it. He chased me in the parking lot with a broken bottle. Like, chased me in the parking lot with a oh, broken bottle. Oh, snap. And as he was chasing me, I was like, you know, I either have to get, like, um, different material or different audiences, or I need to get better at running. And I was like, <laughs> oh I don't like God. to run. I'm going to change my audiences. Oh, my God. And oh, then snap. I started to really mold myself as more Wait, like... Where, a, where was this? So you uh, read not say. You know, it was a, it's, I don't like it's open anymore. It was one of those... Uh, it was a comedy... Um, bar comedy um club in the basement of like a hampton inn in northwest 
Philadelphia. No, oh, so geez. I don't think it's open anymore. Oh no, no, no. no uh, I would be no. super surprised. I remember it was like still when people could smoke, and it was like completely smoky, and it was just like series of like, wow, I didn't even know you could make that joke, racist and homophobic and xenophobic at the same time. Congratulations, it was just disgusting. And it's basements, right? <laughs> <laughs> Bottom feeders, it's right, basements. Exactly. Did you ever go to um the the what they used to call the Lower East Side alternative comedy performance venue? Did you ever go to Surf Reality or Collective Unconscious or Luna Lounge or any um, of those? Luna Lounge. I did Luna Lounge a little bit like back in the day. Um, Which would those, have been like 2000. Yeah. Um, those are some of the places like I started. I started with, um, what was the Chicks in Comedy one that Michelle? Oh, yeah. And, yeah that, was, um, that was how I met uh, Cheryl the first time, like in 2005, 2006, like that. And actually, I was really grateful for that because that gave me an idea of how comedy could be different. Huh. You know, and so I was like, well... So it seems like to me, like people who are doing comedy, just like going to comedy clubs and just touring like that, really almost ended up doing like cover, like the the comedy equivalent of being a cover song, right? Like they just, oh, this is my joke about like LA and New York are different. This is my joke about, um, you know, how men are different from women. Mm. All just like very kind of boring, mundane topics, but I wanted to talk about different stuff. And also I look different, right? I'm like, you know, like gender queer, And it just, so I was kind of forced into another another way of being another way of making a career and um so I just modeled myself on um like an independent musician I just put out a cd every three years and it would just tour it so oh I didn't even know you did music well no no not music comedy comedy oh CD. comedy oh okay because so, you like music I'm like did you play guitar did I miss something <laughs> no I mean almost like every oh, okay. lesbian plays a guitar but I'm I'm mm. not in that category okay like guitar playing lesbian um yeah, but I just put out a CD every three I know, because there's so years. many, right? Yeah. <laughs> I put out a CD every three years, and then I would, like, I did Lady Fest for a long time. I did Prides. One year I did, like, 37 Prides in one year. Oh, my um, God. Back when Prides had money to pay. They don't so so were, you, were you making bank, or were you just getting by? Uh, I mean, then I still had a day job. Um, until I moved to, uh, to New York, I had a day job. Um, and then... You know, that was, you put those together, it was pretty good. Wow. But in 2008, people really lost after that recession. People lost um, that money to have that kind of money for prides and stuff like that. Right. So, I and mean, people lost a lot of money for going out. People right. lost money to, to buy an extra bag of friggin' cat litter. Right, exactly. Serious. Exactly. So it changed a lot. Yeah. Um, and then, but then I was here, so I had lots of other alternatives. And I do a lot of performing for, I do um, nurses' conferences. I do home visiting conferences because I was a home visiting nurse for years. That's right. You were a yeah. nurse, too. Yeah. Well, you still are a nurse. Like, once a nurse, always a nurse. Yeah, yeah. I, know I still have my license, and I still um, do a little private duty nursing for, um, for, like, rich people who've had... Uh, plastic surgery that's really mm-hmm. yeah which is a lucrative side gig and then oh my I also, god like, that's interesting and then i'm also like you know oh and i tell them like a, a story about like a student i worked with or something like that to also give them the idea about like oh there's people whose biggest problem is not that they just had plastic surgery right you know? right so. yeah yeah the biggest problem is that no actually the biggest problem could be that they would need plastic surgery but not because they wanted to right yeah, right. like they got cut up or something. Right, exactly. Oh, my exactly. God. Oh, so. my God. Now, now I want dirt on people, but that will be after the show, <laughs> after the interview. So um, when did you become a teacher? I'm not a teacher. I'm actually a community school director. Oh, okay. So um, basically what that is is the idea behind the community school movement in general is that you're it's a way of putting resources into schools so that basically it frees up Teachers to teach, principals to be principals, you know, that kind of thing. Like, mm. for example, um, we're doing a lot of I work with an arts organization that brings in a lot of um, arts into 
uh, into the school and also helps engage kids around attendance. You know, like, because by the time kids are in high school, like, if they're really not, if they don't really see a future for them that involves academics exactly, it's hard to, really hard to engage them with, no, no, math, math is important. So, you know, like, oh, sometimes they might be interested in video production or music production or visual arts or something like that. So, like, finding different ways to engage kids. Um, to keep them, you know, at least slightly invested in the school process and coming to school. That's amazing. So. That's God's work, man. I mean, I, I, that's that's just. I'm like floored because, like, I think that people like you should be the ones that are making the athlete salaries. Because I, in my mind, like, if you're making a kid into a better person, that's worth more than how many fucking home runs you hit. Yeah. Well, you I know, mean, you. that's very. That's true. only my opinion. <laughs> But who's listening? <laughs> right, right. Betsy Devo? <laughs> right, yeah, oh, I, I mean Devo's. So. Oh, my God. I don't, I don't think she's listening. No, I don't, I don't think, think she's thinking. No, no she yeah. doesn't listen to anything. That, that's fine. So, <laughs> But a lot of people were listening when you did your last uh, play festival. Oh, yeah. And your storytelling festival called Organ Recital. Organ Recital. Which, did you know that that's actually a slang term for fart? Did you know that? No. I did not know that. And somebody announced that the last night of the festival. And I was like... Oh, I didn't know that at all. Really? I know. I work with teenagers. I thought I, I, I accidentally keep up on slang, even if I don't want to. So is that like a new slang or is that like an I old? I think it might be an old, old, old slang. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. it'd be like really old. Yeah. But, you know, organ recital is also like a play on organs and recital. Anyway, I thought it was a cute name. Um, it's actually suggested by Hannah Blank, uh, who's a writer uh, um, and a friend of mine. So I thought it was a great name. Anyway, the idea behind it was... Yeah, how did you come up with the idea yeah, so of it and all of that? I have actually wanted to do a storytelling festival for a while. And um, last year I was involved in Cinderblock Comedy Festival. Do you know what happened Yes, I heard about right, that. Right, so they, they did this like alternative thing where they really, like, they charge uh, cisgendered straight white men full price to apply. And then they, uh, then they um, everyone else, they gave them a little bit of break and people lost their mind. White cis straight comics lost their mind. Um, male comics lost their oh, mind. Guess what? Guess what? You're not going to find on this show either. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Yeah, they, the rest of the world can have that. Yeah, they can yeah. have the rest of the world, right? Yeah. So um, I was really impressed by what they were doing, and especially was comics. <laughs> they were, you know, they were really for now making such a you know they're making a festival kind of out of nothing, and I was like, oh, that's for young kids. Like I don't, you know, I'm almost fifty. I can't do that, and. um and then Trump got elected, and I was like, you know what? Like, that's not an option. Being this, being too tired to do something isn't really an option. Um, so I was like, okay, we're gonna do it as a, as a. So it's you know um, stories about bodies, health, and healthcare. And it was all really, it was all resistance. It was all like um, the first night was all. Um, it was called Fat Imagination. Um, the second night was oh, it was amazing. It was the Valentine's Day show, and it was about. Um, I love my pre-existing condition stories of the ACA. Oh, and it was packed. Stephanie Schroeder and Ashley Young did that. Um, uh, you know, curated that. It was packed. It was packed on a Tuesday night to hear insurance stories. Um, Jess Tom always, uh, also did a great show. Um, we did a show on death. Uh, we did a queer memoir on how we survived, um, and then a take two at the end. And it was actually, and we had a couple of workshops. It was fantastic. Uh, people. One of the really nice things is uh, Joanna Briley, who I know from two thousand and one performing comedy. Um, she's straight. And since I mostly do queer shows, I've never been able to book her. And, um, so I booked her and I was like, oh, she's a comic. I don't know, you know. And she told this like really beautiful story about, um, about an experience with her dad and how he was dead to her before he was actually dead. And she was like, wow, I didn't know I could talk about that on stage. And I was like, for me, that was the answer. I was like, if I can just help comics talk about some of these things that they think maybe they can't, that they can only talk about airline food or like, you know, 
um, hotel soap and really realize that they can talk about death and stuff on stage and really be, make comedy into a more medium that changes the world. I was like, all right, that's great. That's uh, amazing yeah. because like we all have stories like that. And the, the, the sad thing is, is that we don't have venues or places that allow us to be that honest and frank sometimes. And, and pe- but people want those stories. And people want those yeah. stories. I mean, that's what I've learned with Queer Memoir too is like, Queer Memoir, it's, you know, it's now in the seventh year. We never have more than less than 60 people there. And it is literally just a person standing on a stage saying, okay, so this is what happened to me. You know, yeah. it's not fancy. There's no, nobody's juggling anything. There's no burlesque. There's no glitter. It's just like, but people are hungry for that. People are really, really it's hungry Because it's raw stuff and, yeah. it, and, it's, and it's nutrition. Right, and, exactly. And it's healing. Yeah. It is. Stories of friggin' power, man. So when is the next queer memoir? Uh, the next queer memoir we're doing as part of um, the, actually the opening of the High Line. Oh! Isn't that amazing? They asked us to do that. I felt really, so it's April 22nd, um, and there'll be more before that. And also we'll probably, Organ Recital may be a monthly show. Um, there was Ooh. a lot of, there was a lot of topics that we just couldn't get into because it was so, I mean, first of all, it was way too ambitious doing, uh, seven days of show. I know. By myself for the first. I know. I mean, I had co-curators, but, um, but. But um, you did it. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And it was packed. It was great. Um, but we didn't do one like on like people were like you need to do one on chronic pain you need to do one on, dis- right, right, right. on disability. Uh, email me, <laughs> yeah. tell me, or we'll get you in next time. <laughs> Just right. like well, maybe we'll have some cis white comics next season. On. <laughs> next year. Well, you know what I mean. We, we're going to be inclusionary, but right. some people get to be included first. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So Kelly, if somebody wants to get in touch with you about any of the fabulous things that you do, what should what should they do? We've got okay. a website? Yeah. Uh, so my website is kellydunham.com. So it's K E L I just I. D-U-N as a Nancy, H-A-M as a Mary dot com. And that's also um, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All those are just my... Kelly Dunham is busy. Besides being the ex-non-gender career nurse storytelling nerd comic so common in modern Brooklyn these days, her comic solo show, Jesus Was No Sissy, about how good Christian girls who might be boys inside learn about masculinity and femininity at the Lord's Boot Camp, Woof, that's a long title. Well, it will be at the Tank Theater's Pride Fest on Thursday, July 6th. For more info, go to kellydunham.com or kellydunham.com. Our last guest artist chose a song to preface his interview that, to me, says just about everything you need to know about him, whether you know him or not. Oh, yeah. about it is appealing everything the traffic will allow no way could you get that happy feeling when you are stealing that extra bomb there's no people like show people they smile when they are long yesterday they told you you would not go back with Chris Adebago in Radio Free Brooklyn. That was There's No Business Like Show Business from the Broadway musical soundtrack in 1954 and sung by the legendary and incomparable Ethel Merman, a definite one of a kind whose like really doesn't exist anymore. Well, today anyway, and if you don't know who she is and why I say that, 
GTS, y'all. Google that shit, why don't you? And speaking of which, this guest artist has a bit of the old school theater about him, too. And I mean that in all the best possible ways. From Fish Out of Agua's Season 1's Episode 16, here is Peter Michael Marino. So I got Peter at the very tail end of a really busy day where he was like loading in on theater. He's about to take a show to Edinburgh Fringe Festival. But what I want to know and what Fish Out of Agua listeners want to know is what started you on this road to perdition? (laughs) (laughs) I know where the story starts in Queens. God. I don't know. Perdition acting. Well, did you did you like go to the fame I, school? I mean, no, I don't know what what started it. I, I really don't. I mean, did you dance? You no, know, that's funny. Your... I was thinking about this. Actually, it's funny. I was just thinking about this um, <laughs> the other day. Uh, funny Girl was on TV, and I remembered when I was in seventh grade mm-hmm. or maybe eighth grade. Mm-hmm. I had pneumonia. Ooh. Uh, I had viral pneumonia, which is kind of the better one. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, like, I don't want to know. Meaning, what, what, like, I wasn't. Conti- it was weird. I don't know what it. It was a weird. Well, you didn't pneumonia. die. So that's I good. didn't die. I guess I still have it. I always will have a, the opportunity to get pneumonia. Oh. But I have never gotten pneumonia okay. or bronchitis. Oh, and I'm not healthy, so it's crazy. Uh, but uh, uh, I was home alone. You know, like. Well, just home in like, Queens. In, no, this was in Long Island. <laughs> oh, yeah, I moved you guys to moved, Long Island. Okay, okay. Yeah, I just moved to Long Island. Right, that Queen, gave me pneumonia. Queens East. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Long I went Island. through my parents' like record stacks of records. I used to listen to all my dad's like the Mills Brothers and like jazzy things and like uh, big band stuff. You know, I mm-hmm. liked that. But I came across they had a bunch of records that were of musicals, mm. South Pacific. Uh, Man of La Mancha and uh, the one I was just talking about. Hair? Funny Girl. Funny Girl. Very typical for and a 70s childhood. Totally. Yeah. So I was like, what's this Funny Girl? And I played that record and I was like, what? What is this? Someone's like singing about how they're feeling? This is, what is this? You know? It really just kind of like it was so weird. Like, I had never seen a musical, really. Is that Barbara Streisand also? Yeah. Like, oh, Don't oh. tell me not to limb. You know, like, what is this type of music? And then I would read, you know, back in the day when we could read. Yeah, like actual books. Small, but, yeah. like, the record opened up and there was, like, the oh, plot. Oh, yeah, liner notes, liner notes. Liner notes, why the song was and what happened. And I just became fascinated. And then um, the, uh, the, my public school was doing um, Oliver. And, of course, I didn't know what Oliver was, but I went to the library and got the record. I was like, this is like a story, and they're singing about it. And then that's, and then the next year I was, like, auditioning for shows, and then, you know, whatever. The rest was history. The rest, then I couldn't escape. Wow. See, it's funny, because I could picture you dancing around your house to Jesus, Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> I was never really a fan of that one, for some reason. I did. too me, heavy. Me and my brother used to do that. We used to, I, play, we used to play, play all the parts. I don't know. No. You know, when I was, like, growing up in Queens, I lived on 61st Street off of uh, Fresh Pond Road, Myrtle Avenue area, and, like, I did used to put on shows, but with absolutely no reference. Like, I had never seen a show. So I don't know how I put on shows, but I would, like, stage Peter Pan in my basement every Christmas. I would, like, just a one-man show. 
Or I would bring my sister in and she would kind of play like Wendy. But I played every other part. Um, I could picture that. And I remembered staging it. And uh, then I used to put on like dance shows. So we would like choreograph like an Osmond song or a Jackson 5 song. Oh, Jackson 5. And then I would go to the printer next door. I lived next door to a printer. And, you know, they would give me Oak Tag. I think that's what we called it yes. back then. And then I would they make sh- posters and put them all around the neighborhood. Like, come see our show in the backyard. Oh, my God. That's like one of those movies with Judy Garland and what's his name? Mickey, Mickey Rooney. Rooney. I think I got it from the Little Rascals. Look them up, millennials. You know, I was a PIX guy, which <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we all were back yeah, in Captain the day. Jack. We only had four channels. Exactly. PIX was the cool one yeah, yeah, yeah. and they used to show Little Rascals and they yep. were always putting on shows yeah, so I was like they I could were. do that I could do that so I guess that's how I learned how to put on shows which was, was watching Little Rascals and their shows were pretty weird yeah and you can't even watch Little Rascals anymore you have to like find it like on YouTube or Netflix or something they're not allowed on broadcast TV anymore I don't think uh, because they're racist I guess not all of them. Not all of them, but I don't know. I, I don't know. There's reasons for everything. Yeah. That, 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 uh, that, uh, so I that's get. how I fucking wound up in... Uh, can you curse? Yes, this is not FCC. That's how I wound up in, in the arts, I suppose. Yeah. That, that, what, what, what was the curse word in that sentence? Fucking. <laughs> <laughs> so did you, did you go to a performing arts high school or college? No. I mean, I went to a state college. I went to a school in Buffalo because I wasn't really sure if... I want. To, I was really interested in design, uh, both graphic design and theater design. Oh, and cool. Buffalo had like a both like SUNY Buffalo. Yeah, uh, they had. They both. Had, they had a great program for 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 both graphic design, or just design, I guess it was called, uh, and theater. And then uh, I really got into like color theory. I really took a lot of color theory classes, uh, and I took some logo classes. And then I just took a crap ton of theater, like everything, like lighting design, set design, costume design, makeup design, everything. So how did you end up in Stomp? <laughs> That's a great question. Because you the, did that for like 10 years, right? I did that for five years, okay. five and a half okay. years. Uh, that was, uh, well, I played drums. I came home from, so I have a cousin who's a drummer who's three or four years older. And I came home from school one day when I was because I went to school, I'm a Scorpio, so I went to school when I was four, not when I was five. Not college. Yeah. Uh, and I came home one day and, I, and my father said, do you want to learn how to play drums? I said, yeah. And then we went right to the Mr. Gillespie and I learned how to play drums. Oh. So I always played drums, but uh, I didn't like playing a drum set. It mm. was just too loud and too much focus on me. But I knew rhythm and I knew how to read music. And yeah, I w- waited outside the West Beth, you know. What on year Bank was Street. That? What year was that? Oh my God! I don't know, eighteen hundred and twenty or something. I mean, it was a really long time ago. Like nineteen ninety. I want to say it was like oh maybe ninety five. Okay. Ninety three or ninety four. Okay. I waited outside with hundreds of people. Got down to the you know just kept getting cut and cut and then I kept staying and stuff and then I didn't get in. And then the next year they called me back. I didn't get in. Then six months later they called me back. I didn't get in. And then three months later they just offered me the job. So you know what that is? Persistence. Persistence. Yes. And still he persisted. Well, they didn't know what to do with me. They just didn't know what to do with me. I was just like a really just a different, weird, white guy. Uh, and that show is really a lot of clown work. Yes. Uh, which I a have lot never of physical studied. Comedy. It's physical comedy, yeah, yeah, but it's all about like sort of taking in the audience without speaking a word. And the the role that I got was the comic guy who, oh. you know, by the middle of the run of the show of five years, I was playing to like three thousand seat theaters and having to like make three thousand people laugh without saying a word. Wow. And you just kind of learn like how just your 
your eyes yes. can do the yes. work and just your being comfortable on stage really is what it is and, and connecting. And that show is still running today. So how did that segue you into, you've done the Edinburgh Fringe Festival like how many times? Well, this coming August will be my fifth, but my fourth time per, uh, performing. My okay. first year I just directed. Oh, okay. And I left that festival going, I am never coming back here. This place is crazy. And that was de Desperately Seeking Susan? Uh, uh, the desperately seeking the exit. Desperately seeking so, the exit. No, no, the first show I ever directed there was a cabaret show, oh, okay. and I, I left there going this place okay. crazy. Okay. And then two years later, I went okay. back with desperately seeking okay. the exit. Then I went back the next year. Okay. Then I took the next year off. Then I brought Lance last year. Then I took last ah. year, and I brought Gary Busey's One Man Hamlet. Yes. I, so you you both produced and performed in Edinburgh Edinburgh shows. Correct. Over the past like a decade or so. Yes. Okay. Yes. But what I want people to hear about when we're speaking about like our thing is like, and nevertheless he persisted. Talk to us about Desperately Seeking the Exit. Well, that just was born out of a... I mean, I wrote a musical called Desperately Seeking Susan based on the movie, but I used all the mu music of Blondie, and it took two years to develop, and it was supposed to be a big hit, as everything is, yeah. and it turned out to be a really big flop. It was just everything went wrong, uh, and then about a year after it closed, which was a, a month after it opened, uh, I just wrote down the whole... I, I had kept a blog of the whole thing, and... The debacle? One day I just looked at the blog and I was like, oh, this is like a good story. I was, rem I was far enough away from the experience that mm. I was able to view it objectively and not be like, I'm a loser. It was terrible. Right. I hate everybody. That's the, dis the, that's the difference that distance makes. It doesn't become therapy. Sweet. You can look at it objectively yeah. and you can find the humor in the worst yeah. fucking situation. And oh, I think yeah. it kind of, I think in a weird way that show like kind of put me on the map because... You know, who doesn't want to see, like, a backstage gossipy story? Although it's not really. It's just facts. It's not gossip. Right. Uh, and I think because it was a solo show, it was sort of storytelling and some theatricality because I used music and stuff in it. Um, that I, I, Yeah, I mean, it just kind of made me go, oh, I guess I like this. And it, you, it's the quintessential. You took a lemon and made, like, lemon mojitos yeah. out of it. Yeah, Seriously, yeah. that's great. I like how it, like, kind of inspired other people. Yeah. And that's kind of, like, I, I feel like from that show of realizing, like, how you can connect with strangers, mm -hmm. which is why I go to Edinburgh, because that's the only place right. that I don't know enough people. The audience is strangers. If you can connect with strangers and make them feel something uh you feel like you're doing more than like just jerking off and doing telling right. my shit i i it's now become like the most important thing to me is that i am affecting people as opposed to just doing it for me yeah no i totally get it i mean to me that's what makes you such a good teacher is that you you can t distill that experience that that you had and you can impart it in a way that's so non-judgmental and you have this like supernatural ability to know exactly what the person needs to fix the show like when you told me to do the bear and there goes the neighborhood from the bear's I point of view that. and oh, I man. just like turned fucking white as a shit <laughs> my hair went gray people and then it came back oh my god it was crazy so talk to us it's true and I'm still doing the show today there goes the neighborhood that's why I call it the bear show yeah the bear to show to me it's like the Teddy. bear is like what I such a good show. I will be bringing it back, but back to Fish Out of Agua. So um, tell us a bit about SoloCom, why you started it, and, and, and who you're doing it with, and your plans for, for the future, and blah, blah. I just cooked up the idea and pitched it to the pit, you know, four years ago, because it just felt like there were lots of solo festivals, but none that were doing new work, and none that were doing comedy. Mm. So I just thought, well, New York needs a festival that is all new solo comedy work, and... You know, it's kind of like, you know, from me working with you, like, I'll give you a deadline and I'll make you work towards a certain goal and stuff. Solo Calm, like, 
forces people yes. to a come up with an idea to the to apply, and then b they have to get it done in ten weeks. Yeah, no, I know. I, ha- I got two shows out of that. Yeah, the bear show that yeah. goes to the neighborhood, just, and, and the that's how it is, time. right? I mean, you know, like you've got to like book the dates. Yeah, otherwise you're just gonna keep developing. I'm doing air quotes because I'm forgetting I'm on radio. Air quotes, air yeah, quotes. yeah, yeah. You forget, you know, you're just developing the show in your head, right? But like once you book dates, then you're accountable. Like you have to yeah. show up. It's like when I pitched this to Radio Free Brooklyn. I had no clue how to do a radio show. I'm recording this on the voice recorder on my Android phone. But, like, you know, you figure it out as it goes along. Like, if it was good enough for the Ramones, it's good enough for me. You just, like, do it. Just freaking do it. So um, tell us about your your latest show. Uh, Show Up. Now I'm doing a show called Show Up, which, isn't that the best title? I can't believe no one else has used that title. I think it's just the best title it, it, ever. It, it was waiting for you. It was waiting for me. Yeah, so this show just came out of me knowing I had to do another show. <laughs> it's That's a weird artist thing, right? You yeah. just kind of know. It's like, yeah, it's it's like I guess the women like, feel like they have to get pregnant. Well, I get pregnant with, with, with art stuff. Yeah, you're just birthing a new baby. Yeah. And it was time to birth a new baby, but I just wasn't in the mood to write or memorize a show. I just wasn't. So I was like, well, let me just show up at a theater and make a show happen. And I thought of all these different ways that could happen, which is already becoming artistic because you're already thinking about the process. Right. And then it was uh, very soon it was um, becoming like, oh, maybe I should make it a solo show based on the audience. And then I was like, oh, well, I'll just get suggestions from them about their real life experiences. And then it became about, oh, maybe I can get them by telling them some of the things about myself as an example, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and then one day I remember texting my director, Nicole Biancasino, and saying, oh my God, the show just took this really dark turn. She goes, great, what is it? And I said, I'm just going to out myself as someone with social anxiety and depression. And she was like, that sounds great. Because <laughs> she's Why evil theater? like me. And then that's kind of what it became. So the show is like half of it is tackles social anxiety and depression, and the other half tackles... Uh, sort of uh, embracing and spoofing the genre of solo shows. But the way that all happens is because the audience has to be so involved in the show that they cannot be socially anxious. Right. So the trick is for me to make them feel very comfortable, but also let them know they're a huge part of the show. And so far, after 11 performances or 12 performances now, no one has ever not come up on stage. Wow. So it's actually kind of meta, isn't it? Meta and good. It's totally meta. That's excellent. When's, good for when's me. the next performance? Well, Thursday. This oh Thursday. no, yeah. you know. Doesn't by the time matter. this airs, the next, by done. the time this airs, I'll be doing it in Edinburgh the whole month of August. Just you know what? If you're really fascinated by this, go to my brand new website. And what's it called? Showuptheshow.com. All right. So I mean, the, did the gods smile when I was like, "Is this did. available?" It's available. I'm smiling. So this has been Peter Michael Marino and Fish Out of Agua. Thanks, Thank Peter. You. So, Peter Michael Moreno is busy. He will be doing show up uh, before he takes it to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in August. He'll be doing show up at 59 East 59th from July 11th to 22nd. And go to showuptheshow.com. That's showuptheshow.com. And that's our show, kids. Um, Support us on Radio Free Brooklyn. Go to the donate page. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next. And we'll see you next week. Woohoo! Happy summer.